thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Abnormal Psychologist, the show that shares everyday insights into getting the best out of your mind, body, and lifestyle. Now, please welcome your host, The Abnormal Psychologist herself, Carrie Thompson-Casey. Hello, how are you going? Welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist with me, your host, Carrie Thompson-Casey, the show where we are giving you the how-to to get the best out of you. And today, it's another episode with me where I get to answer some of your wonderful questions that you have been sending in. And I love answering these questions, as I've said before, because it makes me get a better idea of what you what you want to know. Um, so I've had a few questions and there's a few that seem to be very similar. And the couple of questions that I, I thought I'd get to today, one wasn't one that I get very um, asked very often. And um, so we'll, so let's get down to business and let's get cracking and get through some of these questions. Okay, so the first question is how can I tell if someone is really a narcissist? Okay, so first of all, people may use the term narcissist to refer to someone who's very self-involved or puts their needs before others. So that's sort of how we use that in lay terms or everyday conversation. But in psychology terms, there are two ways we would use the term narcissism or narcissist. But I have to say, I don't actually use it a lot in my practice or, or it hasn't really come up in therapeutic conversations Certainly over the last 10 years of private practice, probably maybe a couple of times it's come up. But anyway, let's get down to understanding what this term means. So the first way that a psychologist might use this term is to say that someone has a narcissistic personality type. Um, and there are tests that you may have done through work or, or other types that um, do determine personality types. Um and there are different personality theories, but I think we might save that conversation for another day and, and personality testing. Um, so narcissist, there is a narcissistic personality type. And that would be where individuals have features um, that would you know, help them often rise to leadership positions or power positions. Um, and by definition, they are very competitive and they may demonstrate grandiosity or, um, but sometimes that can also be related to poor decision-making. And on the, on the downside of having a narcissistic personality type, um, you might be seen as, or you are very competitive um, and maybe you devalue others or have poor empathy, maybe envy, and maybe you're lean towards a bit of the paranoid type. And and when I say you, I don't mean you, the listener, I might mean the person that I'm describing. So uh, narcissistic personality types may have potential to abuse their power or their position in a family or in business to promote their own interests. And, and this is where most of the harm is done when a narcissistic personality type goes bad, so to speak. Um, so it can really affect their quality of their relationships as people become aware that, that, that this person um, is more interested in their own needs. But often what's at the core of this narcissistic personality type um, is a difficulty with their own identity and their own self-esteem. And 
and a preoccupation with how they might appear to others and constantly wanting wanting to appear um, to be better than perhaps they are. Um, and that's where the grandiosity comes into it. But it's important to note that someone can have a narcissistic personality type but not actually have narcissistic personality disorder. So remember in our conversations before we've talked about disorder where we refer to a level of disability or more importantly there's some kind of social or academic or occupational functioning issue. So the disorder is, is presenting some kind of problem across those areas of life. So in terms of narcissistic personality disorder then, I'm going to bring you back to the DSM-5, which is something we've also discussed before, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And that's the manual that health professionals use to be consistent across their diagnoses. So if someone says to me, um, I have this person presenting with narcissistic personality disorder, I know that they've probably used the DSM to determine that. And so if I know what the criteria are, then that's what's going to present. So it's a way of communicating communicating across health professionals so there's consistency. So um, let's have a bit of a look in the DSM then and see what we would be looking for as a health professional if I was concerned that perhaps maybe someone is presenting with narcissistic personality disorder. So what we might see is a pervasive pattern of grandiosity. So that's like it's a, it's a continual barrage of behaviors that are fantastical um, um, such as a need for admiration, a lack of empathy. And we would probably see this start in early adulthood and it might show in a variety of dis- different situations. Um, but, but there's five clear criteria that we must see in order to give someone this particular diagnosis. So they must have a grandiose sense of self-importance. So they may exaggerate their achievements and talents and expect to be recognized as superior even when their achievements don't quite match that. Um, They may be preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, um, or ideal love. They may also believe that he or she is special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with other special or high status people or institutions or companies or organizations. And the narcissistic personality disordered individual would also require excessive admiration to be coming their way. And they would also have a sense of entitlement. So that would be unreasonable unreasonable expectations of especially favorable treatment or automatic compliance with his or her expectations. Um, some of the other items might be they're interpersonally exploitive, as in they take advantage of others to for their own gain or, or to their own um, ends. They lack empathy, they are unwilling to recognize or identify with the feelings and needs of others. They're often envious of others and believe others may be envious of him or her. And in general, they might just show arrogance um, or what they call haughty behaviors or attitudes. So I guess the essential feature here of narcissistic personality disorder is that pattern of grandiosity and that need for admiration, but really how they often show themselves in relationships that stands out is that complete lack of empathy or or understanding how the people around them are feeling. Um, and, And that can show itself across work or home life or education settings. So that's sort of the main 
diagnostic criteria that we would be looking for to diagnose where there's a disorder. But I think what, I guess it might sound that this person's like really a show off or arrogant, but what we're really looking for here as a psychologist is trying to understand their vulnerability. And this is most likely to occur in the form of the individual's self-esteem. Um, you know, they'd be very sensitive to injury or criticism or feeling defeated and they might not show it outwardly to others, but they might be really haunted by um, any kind of criticism towards them. Um, they might feel humiliated or degraded or feeling very hollow and empty and they might react with rage or defiant counterattacks. Um, and, the, and these experiences, as you can imagine, would lead to lots of social withdrawal. Um, and even though it might appear to be humility, it, it masks that need for that, that, um, that feedback from the people around them that they are, they are something special. And again, this is why often the biggest side effect of this disorder is those interpersonal relationships that become quite impaired um, because of the person's need for admiration and their sense of entitlement and their disregard for the sensitivities of others. So... Hopefully that gives you a, a, a better understanding of the difference between saying, oh, someone's a bit narcissistic to someone has a narcissistic personality type um, and someone who has a person narcissistic personality disorder. And although you might be thinking that some of that description actually sums up one of your exes, um, in terms of prevalence, it's actually quite low prevalence with community samples showing a prevalence of about zero to six percent. Um, and it's also um, something else that's worth noting is that it's about 50 to 75% of those diagnosed are actually male. So, um, and, and another thing that stands out too is that the narcissist may have difficulty coping with the aging process as they experience changes in their physical or occupational capacity. So they might not be able to cope with changes in their appearance, for example, um, or, or physically starting to feel weakness um, as they age. Um, but again, even though I joke that this might sound like one of your exes, you know, you might actually be thinking about some of the people who are quite high achievers in your life um, or people that are entrepreneurs or people that you might know that are quite famous. Um, and certainly many highly successful individuals do display personality traits that are about being competitive and having a certain level of bravado and arrogance. Um, and, and they might be indeed considered narcissistic. But again, it's only when these traits are really inflexible or maladaptive um, or, they, or they keep persisting well through from young adulthood into adult life and they start to cause that functional impairment or subjective distress. Um, and that's when we might start to look at um, in, looking into treatment um, or, or diagnosis in, of narcissistic personality disorder. So I hope that wraps up most of your questions or that one question that I had around um, narcissists um, versus personality type versus actual disorder. So now another question that I do get asked all the time, and I think I have touched on this a little bit before, um, but it's a, re a really good question and a bit complex. It's what therapy type should I ask for? Is CBT the best? Now, it's really what's interesting about this question is I kind of imagine someone walking into their therapist's office and saying, hi, um, can I just have some CBT, please? But it doesn't 
really work like that, certainly not in my experience um, or certainly not with the therapists that um, I I know. Um, so it's an interesting question. So what one one reason it's interesting is that most psychologists would certainly be familiar with many therapy types, um, certainly through their undergraduate training, um, but certainly as they go into more professional develop, development after they've finished their six years of study or eight years, whatever the case may be, um, they will sort of, I guess, gravitate to towards certain therapy types. And yes, CBT does have a lot of evidence and it is very popular, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best for all different types of presentations. Um, so again, many psychologists will be familiar with many therapy types, um, but are often quite comfortable, um, you know, with one particular therapy type, but they also use a cluster of skills. Psychologists are rarely purists or married to one particular therapy type. So it's, I certainly don't know of anybody um, in my peer group of um, psychologists and clinical psychologists that are very married to just one particular therapy type and they purely use that, um, absolutely purely. Um, but many sci- experienced psychologists would have skill sets that draw on features of the varying therapy types, particularly those that are evidence-based. So particularly in some types of work environments and some types of funding arrangements, psychologists are only able to use as evidence-based therapy treatments. So what that means is that there's um, evidence to suggest that that particular therapy type for that particular presenting problem has research that demonstrates that the therapy is effective for that problem. So if you feel like you want to experience a certain therapy type, you can discuss this, of course, with your psychologist when you make the first appointment and you can discuss together why it is you feel that you want that particular therapy type and if that's the type of therapy type that may dominate that particular psychologist's practice. Um, But I hope that makes sense. So CBT is, as you might know, is cognitive behavioral therapy, and it certainly has attracted a lot of research. And often in professional development events that I've been to, um, I guess the argument, not against CBT, but to level it out, is that CBT is in fact the most research therapy type. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's the um, best therapy type, you know, one size fits all but definitely well-researched and definitely popular. Uh, In in my early career, some of you may know that I worked um, as a sexual assault worker for New South Wales Health. And in that particular role, for example, we were encouraged to build skills and work from a narrative therapy perspective. Um, And just in case you haven't heard of narrative therapy before, it's an approach that centers around the idea that therapy is essentially a special kind of conversation that elicits a client's strengths and competencies and helps the client arrive at their own solutions. So the psychologist is there to assist in creating conversations that reveal the client's strengths and skills and empowers that client to then make change. The psychologist and the client explore and unpack complex issues within the problem-solving process and I guess another really important part of narrative therapy is there's a balance of power in that it, it is the client um, is is the one that's in control and they become more and the idea then is that they become more able to assume control of the problem or of their problems Um you know, we all have different beliefs and assumptions that influence how we 
see things and how we experience things and how we view differences um, and how we see other people. And sometimes we draw distinctions between certain events or people as good or bad or irrelevant. Um, And narrative therapy is how we, we start to view that. I guess the easiest way to explain this um, is my own experience of how I've heard narrative therapy described and that as is as reauthoring your story or the psychologist assisting the person in front of them to see or experience their story differently um, and particularly from this newfound place of strength and problem solving that has been explored through the therapeutic approach through that conversational approach so Narrative therapy is building a lot of evidence. Um, it, it perhaps hasn't been around as long as some of the other therapy t- therapy types, but it's certainly building a lot of momentum um, as a therapy of choice um, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And as I said, in terms of um, trauma in work, such as sexual assault work, for example, there's certainly um, evidence building or an argument building for the use of narrative therapy as as a therapy choice but that's just two you know there's there is really a large amount of therapy types out there and I remember um, you know in my undergraduate degree exploring um, different types of approaches and different therapies and looking at what the evidence there was and I guess just like all of us might have a different way we like our Um, eggs for breakfast then certainly some clinicians or psychologists would drift towards um, a a therapy mode that that sits comfortably with them but I think you know something that certainly have has been a real passion and interest of mine um, or one of the interests in the therapeutic process is that it's also really important to keep in mind that it's your relationship with your treating psychologist um, that is really important. Uh, and in some research, in fact, has found that the quality of that therapeutic relationship or what's known as the therapeutic alliance can in some cases be a really good predictor of the outcome regardless of the therapy type. And so that throws people who are quite married to their therapy types. That might sound a little bit controversial. There might be a few psychologists out there cursing me as I say that, but there is a lot of research that talks about factors outside the therapy type that are really critical in getting um, a constructive outcome. You know, for example, the individual client, you know, obviously when a client presents to therapy and they're motivated to change and they're really active in their engagement and participation in the therapeutic process, you know, that's also super critical um, to get constructive and positive and lasting outcomes for the client that has presented. You would know that about life in general that, you know, sometimes, you know, if you're not enjoying that process or you're not enjoying a relationship, whether it's a personal trainer or a psychologist, a GP, a teacher, whoever it might be in your life, if you're not enjoying the process of that particular path that you're on or you're not enjoying the company of that health professional or person that you're paying or or engaged with, it makes it a much more difficult process. So, I guess those factors that we're really looking for is how engaged is that person in in getting some outcomes? You know, what's their support network, their relationship with that professional, um, and and both of them having a mutual goal that you're both working towards this goal together. 
Um, and so that's why, you know, I often say to people that going to see a psychologist, you know, you have to check the psychologist out. You know, certainly that first phone call, setting up that initial appointment can be really helpful to get a bit of an idea of what the psychologist's like. But I think it's also really clear at the end of that, important at the end of that first session to clarify what you understand the psychologist ha- and, and what the psychologist has said. And certainly for psychologists back to their to their clients to make sure that their client um, understands what their approach is and what their expectations will be. And so that's really clear and part of that treatment planning process at the end of the initial assessment, whether that's at the end of the first appointment or the end of the second appointment. So hopefully, I feel like I waffled on a little bit there, but hopefully we got to the end of um, what would happen if you asked um, or what, what therapy type should I ask for? So really it depends on the presenting problem. It depends on what the therapist offers um, and it's working together to, to come up with a way of working that works well for both of you and, and obviously with, is within the health professional skill set. And I think that's really important to, you know, uh, without wading into another controversial pool, um, you know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about who's qualified to say what. Um, and again, you know, sometimes our best advisor is a family member or a partner or a parent um, or, or it could be a health professional. So I encourage you to find out whatever health professional, what are health goals or psychological goals or social goals, whatever your goals might be, have a look into the background of the person that you're engaging. You can find out about health professionals by going to APRA, which is A-H-P-R-A, which is the Health Professionals Registration Board. And that can get, let you know what the person's background qualifications are. But there's certainly, you know, a lot of people out there making a lot of statements about a lot of things that are around telling you what the health goals are for different things. And just be mindful of what it is that you want as an outcome and what you think you need in terms of the skills of the health professional. Really important to to take control of that process when you're engaging someone. So just going through another couple of questions here and see how many minutes I've got left. Okay, we've got a couple more minutes. Okay, so what am I reading at the moment? So I just at the moment, I just finished Richard Branson's Losing My Virginity. Um, in terms of a book review, I can't say that at the end of that book, I felt um, right, I'm going to do things differently or I'm really charged up and motivated, but certainly it gave me a lot better understanding of Richard Branson and those early years for him and how he grew with that process. Um, another book that I have beside my bed given to me by a dear girlfriend um, is The Parents Tao Te Ching, um, which I pick up from time to time, which has some lovely writing is in there that I use for reflection and inspiration. It's really quite lovely. Okay, what other questions have I got here on my list? Uh, what are your must-haves in your handbag? Um, anyone who knows me is I'm not a super girly girl, but I do 
love to have a tidy handbag. And you may remember that I interviewed the fly lady a little while back. And one of the things that really stick with me with fly lady in terms of cleaning and tidying is to clean out my handbag every Friday. And I do that religiously on a Fridays, make sure my handbag is very tidy. But uh, must-haves in my handbag, I'm not sure if this is very therapeutically inclined, um, but I do have 28 uh, rose oil. Um, I love that as a quick freshener and um, spritzer. I just um, grab a bit of that oil. Um, My handbag hook, I completely fall apart if I don't have my handbag hook. Um, Certainly not a germaphobe, but I hate putting my handbag on the ground. Um, My handbag is not leather, um, it's cloth. And I just hate to um, have that on the ground or somewhere I don't want it. So I love whipping out my handbag hook and fixing that to something nearby, like a table. Um, and I guess tissues, having two kids, definitely tissues, particularly in cold season, um, is a must. Um, but again, there's not a whole heap of stuff in my handbag that's not essential. Um, I'm not one for all bits and bobs. Um when will you be running more events? Okay, so events. I am at the moment trying to get my head around lots of commitments that I have in the second half of this year and a few changes going on for my family that I have um, talked to you about before. Um, and look, I, I, I'm definitely running events. There's two streams of events. One is for the public, which is the Resilience for the Anxious Mind and Body. I did a tour earlier in the year and that was lots of fun. And I'm going to be redoing that tour again, but with different uh, locations. I think the second half of the year, at the moment, locations, we're looking at Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. But also there'll be the other stream, which is working with health professionals to get uh, better engagement and outcomes out of their clients. Um, So understanding what it is, um, the theory and the application of change agency. How do we create change in other people? So I'll be running those events. So they haven't been put up as yet, but I'm talking early July now to 2015. Um, But hopefully they will all be definitely up by the end of July for the second half of the year. Um, I do have a few um, places in the coaching and mentoring programs, but they're very limited at the moment. Um, And again, the best way to contact me about that is through the website, the same as finding more about um, events. And that's at um, the three W's dot Carrie Thompson, Casey.com. That's Thompson without a P. So C-A-R-R-I-E-T-H-O-M-S-O-N-C-A-S-E-Y.com. And that's the best place to find out about um, events that are coming up. Um, or you can email info at carriethompsoncasey.com and someone will get back to you there. Um, but really enjoy your questions. So do keep them coming. Um, I'm really looking forward to being at the Wellness Summit and hopefully meeting some of the listeners there, which is going to be in August in Melbourne. And you can find out more about that um, at thewellnesscouch.com. And yeah, uh, got some great guests lined up for more shows in the next couple of episodes. Really excited. And, and, and some of the really cool parts of this podcast is I get to interview some of my psychology heroes. Um, so definitely got a couple of those coming up as well. So I'm really glad that I can be part of the Wellness Couch and I can be getting all these emails from you to hear about what you want to know about. Um, and 
you know, I think the tap listeners are a really top crew and I love all your feedback. So please spread the word and tell your friends and tell them to listen to or and subscribe through to tap through iTunes. And don't forget to give the show a five-star rating if you liked it. For more information about events and programs, please visit carriethompsoncasey.com. Thank you for joining me and see you on the next episode of The Abnormal Psychologist, where we share real people's stories and give you real ideas so that you can realize your potential. Take care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.